heaven and the after a while. We began a series last evening about why we believe what we believe. These are some fundamental studies that have to do with why we believe what we believe and why we practice what we practice and why we don't do certain things uh, that others may be doing in their religious practices. And so we're answering the question of why. Last evening, as already mentioned, we talked about why we believe. It makes a difference what one believes. Tonight we're focusing on why we believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And then tomorrow evening we're going to talk about why we believe there's just one church. And then on Sunday we have three studies. We'll talk about why we believe miracles have ceased, why we believe hell is real and eternal, and we'll close by looking at why we do not believe once saved, always saved. And that's just the beginning of a whole list of questions of why that we could talk about and we could discuss. And so let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection from the grave, is at the heart and the core of all that we believe and all that we do in religion. If Jesus was raised from the dead, and we seek to prove that he was, but if that is true, then we must conclude that God is. There is a God. And if I had one argument that I could make for proving the existence of God, and I could only make one, I would argue from the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus indeed was raised from the dead. And if he was raised from the dead, it proves there is a God. That furthermore proves that Jesus is the Son of God. It proves his deity. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1 and in verse 4. And furthermore, that whatever he says and has revealed to us must be true, so the word of God is true. So if we can prove Jesus was raised from the dead, we've proven a great deal about our faith, and that is that God exists, Jesus is the Son of God, and the Word of God is true. Furthermore, that becomes, that is, the resurrection of Christ becomes what we refer to as the hub of the gospel. What do we mean by that? Well, if you could look at the concept of an old wagon wheel that has the hub that all the spokes center and revolve around that hub. And that is, if I wanted to destroy that wheel, I just cut the hub out and the, the spokes all fall out. And so all of those spokes depend upon that hub. The resurrection of Christ becomes the hub of the gospel. Now let's look at this passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 14 or verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 13. Now what am I learning from this? This passage is dealing with the resurrection from the dead, the general resurrection and the end of time of all men. And some were denying that. And so Paul deals in this context that if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is not raised. And if Jesus is not raised, then here's some consequences. So notice the things that are the spokes that have dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then as our preaching empty and our faith is empty. And we're going to finish reading here, but notice that our faith and our preaching are dependent on the resurrection. Let's go further. Look at verse 15. Yes, and we're found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Jesus, whom he did not raise up, if indeed the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, that's enough to make the point we want to see. I want us to see how all the spokes of the wheel center around the resurrection. If Jesus was raised from the dead... That means our faith is sustained because of the resurrection. Our faith is dependent on the resurrection. But not only our faith, our preaching, Paul mentioned. 
He also mentioned the idea of witnessing. Now, we don't witness because we were not eyewitnesses, but the apostles did. The witnessing of the apostles is dependent on the resurrection. And furthermore, the, the hope for the dead, that is the hope that we have for those who have gone ahead, any hope that we have is based upon the resurrection, and our own hope is based on the resurrection. The deity of Christ, we've already uh, demonstrated, depends on his resurrection. Furthermore, the work that he does, that is, he is our high priest, and he ever lives to make intercession, is dependent on the resurrection, and the remission of our sins is dependent on the resurrection. So if I wanted to destroy Christianity, and we'll come back to this toward the end of our study, I don't have to attack Christ's work. I don't have to attack the remission of sins or the witnessing of the apostles. All we have to do is remove that hub. That is, if we could destroy the concept of the resurrection of Christ, we have destroyed the system of Christianity. All centers around the resurrection of Christ. So tonight we raise the question, why do we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Why do we believe that? And I want you to understand that faith that we have in the resurrection is not just a blind leap into the dark. It's not that we've just decided, you know what, I'd like to believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Or I believe that because that's what my parents always said. And I went to church and they told me that he was raised from the dead. But we believe that because of evidence that can be cited. There is evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Let's start with this. We start, first of all, the empty tomb. The fact that Jesus died and was placed in the tomb and the tomb was empty. That is, the tomb is now empty. Is evidence of the resurrection. Now let's go with establishing the fact that the tomb is empty. Let's go back to the historical account and someone says, well now if you're trying to prove things about the Bible, you don't go to the Bible. My, my question is, why not? It's a historical book. Let's look in Matthew, if you will, chapter 28 in this account of the resurrection. And I noticed that the angel announced when the disciples came to the tomb that he is not here for he has risen as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. The announcement of the angel was that indeed the tomb is empty. Now let's go to the 24th chapter of the gospel of Luke and notice in verse 3, again an announcement was made that they, or the text says that they went in, that is when the disciples came to the tomb, they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. In other words, they found the tomb was empty. And that was admitted by all. That was admitted by the disciples. That was admitted by the enemies because they made up a lie about that. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. The tomb being empty was admitted by all. Now let's stop just for a moment and we'll not notice every detail of these passages. I just want to give a summary of the tomb itself. Let's analyze the tomb. First of all, Luke 23, 53 and John 19, 41 tells us it was a new tomb. What's the significance of that? This is not a tomb where they've laid other bodies, consequently, so that someone could come back and say there's a body still there. He must still be dead. This was a new tomb. Secondly, it was made of solid rock according to Matthew 27, 60 and Mark 15, 46, which means it wasn't like a cave where you might have an exit out the back so that he could have escaped if he was still alive. But it was made of solid rock, and thirdly, the only opening was sealed with a great stone, Mark 16, and in verse 4. So that any body that was placed there, if it wasn't dead, could not escape from that, because it is it's sealed with this great stone. Now here's what they found in the tomb. Let's go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, if you will, and in verse 6 and 7, John chapter 20, Simon Peter came following him, that is, 
the other disciple that outran him, went into the tomb and they saw the linen cloth lying there. Not lying with the linen clothes, but or cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So when the disciples got there, Peter runs in and what he found was, here's the linen cloth that was wrapped about his body laying here, and then there was the face cloth folded together in a place by itself. That's what they found. Obviously, the tomb is empty. But here is the question that we have. And that is, how did the tomb become empty? It was admitted by all the tomb is empty. They placed the body of Jesus in the tomb, but now it's empty. How did it become empty? That's the question. Well, here are some of the ideas that men have presented as explanations for that. And so some have come up with this idea of the swoon theory. What is the swoon theory? The swoon theory is that Jesus really didn't die, but he merely fainted on the cross or he passed out on the cross. He was placed in the tomb. He came back to himself or he came to, and then he pushes his way out or he escapes from the tomb. He never really did die, but that's the way they explained that. Well, let's analyze that for a moment. There was a stone placed there that three women in their full strength recognized they couldn't move because on their way to the tomb, they asked who is going to move the stone. Remember that? Three women in their full strength. Jesus could not have moved the stone in his weakened condition because you think, first of all, about the blood that he's lost. A spear was pierced into his side and there came out blood and water. Think of the blood that he's lost. Furthermore, add to that, he hasn't eaten for three days. Think of the weakened condition of Jesus. Those that were around the cross recognized and admitted that Jesus was dead. It was never a question, did he just faint? Did he pass out? Or did he die? They recognized indeed that he was dead. Empty tomb, and that is that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. The disciples went and stole it, and then they made the claim that indeed he was raised from the dead. That was the charge that was made by the, uh, the soldiers, or the, the, the Sanhedrin basically told the soldiers, you need to make this story up and tell them that the disciples stole it while you slept, Matthew 28 and in verse 13. But I raise the question, how could they do that without waking the guards as they were sleeping? How can they roll away the stone, go in and take the body of Jesus, take the time to unwrap the body, take the face cloth and fold it together in a place by itself, and do that without waking the guards? If the disciples had the body, they would not have made that claim that indeed he was raised from the dead. They had no reason to make that claim because they were not expecting the resurrection as we're going to see a little bit later on. But here's another theory that some have had, and that is that the enemy stole the body of Jesus. That makes about as little sense as anything that I've dis uh, heard described as explaining the empty tomb because there was no motive for that. If they had done that, they could have produced the dead body and destroyed Christianity in its very beginning. You think about what they could have done in Acts 2. When Peter is standing up boldly proclaiming that indeed Jesus has been raised from the dead, they could have taken people to the tomb and showed that he was still there, or at least go get the body and produce the dead body and show that indeed this man is not raised from the dead. Here is his body. Look at his side that's been pierced, his hands here that have been, uh, been pierced. Consequently, he has not been raised from the dead. They could have destroyed Christianity in the very beginning. What motive would they have had for stealing the body of Jesus? Proof for them would be for the body to still be in the grave. And so those theories don't make any sense. The only other explanation that could be given, if the disciples didn't steal it, the enemies didn't steal it, or he really didn't die, 
is the fact that indeed he really was raised from the dead. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 28, if you will. Matthew chapter 28 in verse 7. This was the explanation and the conclusion of the angel. Remember we read in verse 6, Come and see the place where he, uh, he, uh, he is not here, he is risen. Uh, come and see the place where he lay. Now notice verse 7, Go quickly and tell the disciples, He is risen from the dead. Indeed, he's going before you into Galilee, and there he'll see you. Behold, absolutely. He has been from the nation was the tomb is empty. The explanation is he has been bodily raised from the dead. That furthermore fulfilled prophecy that we'll talk about more in just a moment of Psalm 16 and in verse 10. That explanation fits Psalm 16 and in verse 10. That's how the tomb became empty. So what evidence do we have that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, first of all, there is the empty tomb. But secondly, may I suggest to you, the transformation of the disciples argues for the bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, what do we mean by the transformation of the disciples? Well, just before Christ died and at the point of his death, the disciples were in utter despair. Jesus recognized this as he was talking to them before he left them. In John chapter 14, he told them, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, their hearts were troubled at his passing and at his leaving them. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. But not long after the claim of his resurrection, they are completely changed. They're not the same people. Now, I want to go to Luke chapter 24 to establish this point in verse 11. And that is... That when the disciples heard the message that indeed he's been raised from the dead, and we had Mary Magdalene, look at verse, verse 10, and, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women with them, told about going to the tomb and finding it empty. Verse 11 said, their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. What I'm trying to tell you is they were not expecting a resurrection. In other words, the disciples didn't come rushing to the tomb and say, we're going to find it empty, I'm sure. They weren't expecting that. They were not looking for that. They are in utter despair at the death of Jesus, but shortly thereafter, they're all excited. What changed? Well, between the time of their despair and their time of excitement, there was the claim that he was raised from the dead. Now, let me give Peter as an example of that. We take Peter, for example, just prior to the death of Christ, he denied the Lord. Without our reading, you're familiar with that story. That he had just said, I'll, I'll, I'll even die for you. But that very night he denied the Lord three times. You remember that? There's the weakened Peter. His faith fell. The bottom fell out of his faith. But then we find that at the tomb he came, notice, in Luke chapter 24, and look at verse 11, that Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping in he saw the linen cloth lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself. American Standard and the King James says he was wondering in himself. He's kind of puzzled. What's going on? And so what I'm trying to picture for you, he's not expecting the resurrection. He is discouraged. He's even denying the Lord. And yet I want you to notice within a few days of all of that taking place, he's a different man. Notice his boldness. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. Notice Acts chapter 4. Within a few days now, what I want you to see in Acts chapter 4 and in verse 10, 
Notice he's proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. Let it be known to you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. He's proclaiming the same thing in Acts 2, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. Look at Acts 4, beginning at verse 19. Peter and John answered the Sanhedrin and said this, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. That's the same man that denied the Lord just earlier, just a few days before. Now he's saying we cannot but help speak those things. Acts 5, when they were threatened and beaten, we ought to obey God rather than men. You can tell us not to preach, but we're going to keep preaching in the name of Jesus no matter what you do. Now what happened in the meantime? The only thing historically, the claim was that Jesus was raised from the dead and they became convinced of that. Nothing but the resurrection could have done that kind of change in the disciples. But let me suggest to you another evidence. There's the empty tomb, the transformation of the disciples, but there was the change in the Jews themselves. Now, what do we mean by the change in the Jews? Well, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, and they did. For example, in Mark 15, you remember that when Pilate said, What shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him, they said. And again, they cried out, Crucify him. They wanted to kill Jesus. Now, I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 2, because we're going to have to spend a little time there to make our point. In Acts chapter 2, about this change... And the disciples, I want you to know that the very ones that had been crying out, crucifying, that they're the very ones that are gathered together on the day of Pentecost. At least some of those on the day of Pentecost were the very ones that had crucified him. Look at verse 22. Peter said, men of Israel, heed these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to God uh, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in the midst of you as yourselves also know. Now verse 23, read carefully. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. You're the very ones that crucified. You're the very ones that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now let's go to Acts chapter 2. What did they hear? If you haven't gone, gone there, let's go to Acts chapter 2. The very ones that have been shouting, crucify him, are gathered on the day of Pentecost, and they hear Peter preach what they hear. They heard a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I want you to notice three evidences that Peter presented of the resurrection. What are they? Well, here's the first. He pointed out that this fulfills prophecy. Notice beginning at verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he quotes from Psalm 16. What did he say? I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now let's stop there for a moment. That's a quotation from Psalm 16, and that's verse 10 we just quoted. Now what's the point? Look at verse 20. 27 again. You will not leave my soul in Hades, that is, at death. The body and the spirit are separated. The soul goes into, the, the spirit of man goes into the, goes into the Hadean realm, and the body goes to the, to the grave to be corrupted, to decay. Now let's read that again. 
You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, they're going to come back together again. That's the resurrection. That's what a resurrection is. The body and the spirit coming back together. Now then, let's read further. What else does he say about that? Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and is buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What has he just said? Psalm 16, it talked about a resurrection. But he couldn't refer to David. David wasn't talking about himself. How do you know? Go to his tomb and his body's still there. He's still in the grave. So he wasn't talking about himself. All right, let's go further. He argues for the empty tomb. That's what he just mentioned in verse 29. Some tomb's got to be empty, but it wasn't David's tomb. It's the tomb of Christ that's empty. He just made two arguments. Fulfilling prophecy and an empty tomb. He made a third argument. Look at verse 32. That there are witnesses. We'll talk about witnesses in a moment. This Jesus God raised up of which we're all witnesses. He said there's prophecy being fulfilled. And I can tell you who it didn't refer to. And secondly, there's an empty tomb. And thirdly, we're witnesses of that. Here is the abundance of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, here was his conclusion to that. Look at verse 36. Then let all the house of Israel know assuredly or believe that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, that's the sermon they heard. Now, what was their response? They changed. The very ones that had been shouting, crucify him, they changed. Look at verse 37. They were pricked in their hearts. Verse 37, they wanted to know what they must do. What do we do to be obedient to this Jesus that we crucified? They were told to repent and be baptized in his name. Now look at verse 37. That is by his authority. You repent and be baptized by his authority. Now look at verse 41. That many who gladly received his word were baptized, the text said. Many that gladly received his word were baptized. And that day they were added in about 3,000 souls. So they did what they were told and they submitted to the authority of the very one that they had crucified. They made a change. They were convinced of a bodily resurrection from the dead. So there's further evidence that indeed... He was raised from the dead. But let's add a fourth evidence. And that is witnesses. Witnesses are a strong, strong evidence. Let's talk about the criteria for witnesses. Simon Greenleaf, he wrote Testimony of the Evangelist. He practiced law uh, in the early 1800s, in the first half of the 1800s. He was a professor at Harvard. And understand the very principles that he talks about are the very principles that are used in our legal system for establishing witnesses in court today. But here's what he said. He said the credit due to the testimony of the witnesses depends upon, firstly, their honesty. Secondly, their ability. And thirdly, their number and their consistency of their testimony with collateral circumstances. Those first three I want to focus on particularly. What did he just say? Here's the criteria for a witness. Number one, their honesty. Are they honest or do they have a reputation for, for telling lie upon lie upon lie upon lie? And maybe they've been convicted of fraud. Maybe they've been convicted of, of dishonesty. Maybe they, were, they had lied in court time and again. And so they're not credible witnesses. The second thing is their ability. Can, can they... Can they 
can they recall and tell things accurately or do they have some mental incapacity so they can't do that? Can we establish there's problems with their mind? Do they have the ability to? Are they sharp enough to do that? And then thirdly was their number, their agreement. Two witnesses are stronger than one, and three witnesses are even stronger than two, and four, and on down the line. So that if ten witnesses all say the same thing, that's pretty credible, isn't it? All right? Let's put that on for size, and we try that with the resurrection of Christ. The witnesses, that is the apostles, who said, we were eyewitnesses, and we saw him raised from the dead. Let's put it to the test. Are they honest, first of all? Were the disciples honest men? Well, first of all, they suffered for the cause. Why would they suffer for something they knew to be a lie? Why would they be willing to sacrifice their own life for something they knew to be a lie? First of all. But here's one of the things about honesty. I don't know about you, but if I was going to lie, I think one of the first things I would lie about are things about myself. I wouldn't tell my faults. I would hide those, wouldn't you? And yet they revealed their faults as they began to write. They told about Peter's denial. They told about his fault. They told about the ambition of the sons of Zebedee wanting to be on the right hand, the left hand in the kingdom. They revealed that. They also told about the failure to understand. They didn't understand the resurrection. They told that themselves. Matthew's recording that. They told of their own faults, which suggests something of their honesty. The reasons for lying cannot be found. Why do people lie? Sometimes it's because of fear. That wasn't here. They testified in the face of death. They didn't testify that he, because they were being threatened to tell otherwise, they were being threatened because they told of the resurrection, and they told it anyway. What's another reason men lie? Because of greed. There was nothing to be gained by telling of the resurrection. It's not like they get a large sum of money. And another reason for lying is ambition. There was no power to be gained the apostles to the test and they proved to be honest. What about their being competent, their ability? Or, or, or were they such ignorant people they, they don't even know what they're seeing? Are they such unlearned they couldn't formulate a sentence if they tried? What kind of men were these? Well, they had been with Jesus since his baptism. In other words, they'd been around him a long time. They're pretty competent to tell what's going on in his life. But not only that, Matthew was a tax collector. Well, tax collectors were not revered highly, but much like an IRS agent. It's not somebody that's just a total idiot. That's somebody that knows a little something about how to formulate concepts. Same thing with reference to Luke. Luke was a doctor, by the way. And then there was Peter and Andrew and John. They were businessmen. They were fishermen, but they were in the business of fishing. They were businessmen. And then there was John, who had the ability to note details. He was the one that noted that there was something folded together in a place by itself. He said, Peter noted that. And then there was Paul, who was highly educated. The speed of Gamaliel, maybe a master's or perhaps a PhD, tell him out to that. So these men had the ability. They were competent witnesses. They were honest. But furthermore, what about their number or their agreement? You know, if one apostle said, I, he was raised from the dead, another said, no, I, that wasn't Jesus. And another one said, I don't know, and those were the only three. Well, that's not very credible. To borrow a phrase from Luke 22, this is not talking about the apostles, but to borrow a phrase from Luke 22, you finally reach a point, what need we of any further witness? We don't need any more. We've got an abundance of witness. 
says. They all said the same thing. He was raised from the dead. Over 500 claimed they saw the Lord. And so the witnesses give us an abundance of evidence that indeed he was raised from the dead. Very closely connected with that, but I want to separate these and talk about his appearances. Not just the eyewitnesses, but his appearances to several. What do I mean by his appearances? Well, when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, that proved that he was raised from the dead. Let me give you a case in point. Thomas wouldn't believe until he began to hear from or see the Lord himself. Let's go to John chapter 20. Turn to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. And I want you to notice in John 20 and verse 25, Jesus had met with the disciples. Jesus had met with the disciples. And the text says in John uh, chapter 20 and in verse 25 that Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, he said. So John said, no, I'm not going to believe unless I see that myself, unless I see for myself that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, notice a little bit later that when he finally saw John 20, verse 25, 27, and 28, he said, after he put his hand into his side and saw his, the prints in his hands, he said, my Lord and my God. Now, when he saw the Lord, in other words, he made his appearance before the Lord made his appearance. He saw his hands in his side. He uh, could conclude nothing else, but this is my Lord and my God. So his appearance was convincing to Peter, to Thomas, rather. It was convincing to Thomas. Now, I want to suggest to you that he appeared to many. Time would fail us to go over every one of these appearances. I just want to get a running list. If you'd like to have a copy of this, I can get this for you. But he appeared, for example, to Mary Magdalene. Then he appeared to two other women, Matthew chapter 28. He appeared to Simon. Then he appeared to two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the eleven. He appeared to over 500 at once. By the way, this is when Thomas wasn't there in uh, number five. He appeared to 500 at once. Then he appeared to James, 1 Corinthians 15. Then all the apostles, including Thomas this time, uh, uh, the next week, a week later, then he appeared to Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and others in Breakfast by the Sea, by the way, John chapter 21. And then he appeared to the eleven, giving the Great Commission. And then he appeared to the eleven in Jerusalem. And then he appeared to the eleven on the Mount of Olives. And then finally to Paul himself. Now, that could be a study within itself to go through each one of those. And to put those in their chronological order. I believe Farrell Jenkins is one who put that and what he thought was the chronological order in which that he thinks that appears. But be that as it may, what we're suggesting is look at all the appearances of Jesus. And then put that in context when Thomas saw him, he said, This is my Lord and my God. I know it's him. I see his nail print. I see that the uh, mark in his side. But let's talk about the conversion of Saul. His evidence that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. What does the conversion of Saul have to do with any of this? Well, let's talk about a man named Lord George Lyttelton, who lived in the 1700s. This was the argument presented by Lord George Lyttelton in 1747. He had a friend named Gilbert West, and Lord George Lyttelton and Gilbert West set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ. They were unbelievers. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in the Bible. They didn't believe. Uh, they weren't believers at all. 
And they thought the concept of the resurrection was the thing they needed to attack. They understood the hub of the wheel. They got the concept. That if we can destroy faith in the resurrection, then we've destroyed everything else. So Gilbert West said he would take the resurrection of Christ and prove that didn't happen. And Lord George Lyttelton focused on the conversion of Saul. Now why the conversion of Saul? Why did he not pick something else? Like I want to disprove uh, creation. He thought that the conversion of Saul, if what Saul said happened really happened, claimed he saw the Lord raised from the dead. So he's got to prove that what Saul claimed happened didn't happen. Claimed he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. So they set out to prove, both of them were trying to disprove the resurrection. What happened was, in the process of their studying and trying to disprove the resurrection, they came to believe in the resurrection of Christ and strong believers in the resurrection of Christ. So I'm not going to focus on Gilbert West. Let's focus on Lyttelton. Lyttelton said this when he got through. He said the conversion was of itself a demonstration significant to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. And that's interesting. That's not a man who was raised, quote, in the church or raised in faith, who was raised to and told all of his life Jesus was raised from the dead, and he strongly believes that. Here was a man who was trying to disprove the resurrection. And he looks at the conversion of Saul and he came to the conclusion, this really did happen. So let's go through his argumentation. What did he do? In trying to disprove that, he said, here are four possibilities. He took the conversion found in Acts 9 and Acts 22 and Acts 26, those accounts, and began to analyze the conversion of Saul and said, there's only four possibilities. Here's the first. He said, Either Paul was an imposter who knew this was a lie and he just made up the story about his seeing the Lord on the road to Damascus and tried to deceive everybody. That's a possibility, he said. Secondly, maybe this is true, that Paul was an enthusiast who had an imagination that ran wild. And so he really thinks it, but he just got this imagination. Maybe he's an enthusiast. A third possibility, he said, that he was deceived by others. He really thought it happened that he saw the Lord, but somebody had deceived him into thinking that. They staged this for him, and they deceived him. Or, he said, a fourth possibility is what he said about his conversion really did happen, and he couldn't think of any other possibility. Now, maybe you think of another way of wording that, but I think any possibility you come up with is going to be either he was lying, or he was, he was imagined it, or he was deceived by others, or it really did happen. It's going to come under one of those four categories. And he said, so let's, let's see which one of those it is. He thought he'd prove one of the first three. So here's how he began to reason. He looked and said, well, Paul was not an imposter after he studied for a while because he realized there was no motive for life. In other words, there was nothing to be gained by his making up this story about I saw the resurrected Lord. He had no motive for making this story up. There was no money to be gained. People lie because of money. They lie because of reputation. He loses his reputation among the Jews because of the story. There was no power to be gained. There is no motive for lying. And it's interesting that he placed his story on the road to Damascus, not in some obscure place, but on the road to Damascus of all places. And furthermore, the miracles that he performed shows that he was not a fraud. Remember on the first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, the miracles that were performed? Again in Acts 16, on the second missionary journey, performing miracles? 
So he's proclaiming, I saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. He's raised from the dead, and he can perform miracles to prove that indeed he's not a fraud. And so he began to realize, you know what? He's not an imposter. But he still has some other possibilities. He said, let's look at whether or not he's an enthusiast or not. An enthusiast usually sees things he's looking for, and yet Saul wasn't looking for the resurrected Lord because he was fighting against the resurrected Lord. He was an enemy of the cross. He was putting people in prison. He was, he was, he was persecuting the church, making havoc of the church. He wasn't looking for the resurrected Lord. By the way, there were other witnesses. Let's go to Acts chapter 22. Go to Acts chapter 22 and in verse 9. In Acts 22, and um, verse 9, the text talks about, in Acts 26, by the way, makes the same, makes the same, says, now these things, notice in Acts chapter 22, and in verse 9, the text says, now these things were done, uh, now, when these, uh, now those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. The chapter 9 said they heard the voice. It means they couldn't distinguish the sound. They heard, but they couldn't distinguish the sound. That's the, the uh, harmony, I think, of the two texts. So they did hear something, and they saw the light, the text says. What I'm suggesting to you is there were other witnesses to this. It's not that he imagined all of this, but there were others who heard. And they saw something going on. They knew something was different. There are no marks of an enthusiast in him. An enthusiast usually has a temper that runs wild and unreasonable, but not with Saul. Usually an enthusiast is one who is driven with ignorance or out of ignorance, and yet he had such learning that the charge was by Agrippa that much learning has made you mad. You've, you've studied and studied, and, and you, you've gone crazy with your learning. He was schooled in the field of the way. He wasn't ignorant at all. And he doesn't have the misguided zeal that an enthusiast has. And so Lyleton came to the conclusion... Well, he must not be an enthusiast then. So he's left with one possibility or two. And he said, well, let's see if he maybe was deceived by others. And he finally came to the conclusion it's impossible to produce a light brighter than the noonday sun. There's no way they could do that. And he could not, they could not cause the voice to be heard, nor could they cause Paul to be blind for three days and then cause his sight to be regained. They couldn't do that. The only conclusion he finally came to was the only choice I'm left with. He was not an imposter. He's not an enthusiast. He wasn't deceived by others. Lyleton said, the only conclusion I can come to is what he said happened really did happen. And he saw the resurrection. Now that was thought to be strong evidence. And it must be strong evidence because it caused Lyleton to become a believer in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps there's more arguments that we could present, but our purpose here is to, here are some evidences that prove that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. We don't believe in Christ because we just want to believe. We don't believe in Christ because we've always thought that. We believe because there's evidence that he was raised from the dead. What kind of evidence? The tomb is empty. Look at the change and transformation of the disciples, the change in the Jews, the witnesses. The eyewitnesses that were there, and furthermore, the appearances that he made, like to Thomas. And then there's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, all of which argues for the resurrection of Christ, that indeed he was raised from the dead. If Jesus was raised from the dead, let's go back where we started. There is a God. Jesus is the Son of God, and his word must be true. His word must be true.
Tomorrow night we'll continue our studies. We talk about other things that have to do. There is just one church. Why do we believe there is just one church? Why do we believe that? What does the Bible have to say about that? Come back and be with us then. There may be one more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?